The rest of the sermon text from this morning, I just thought I'd split it up into two parts because there's kind of a, quite a bit to go through there, um, is 12 through 19. So this just continues from uh, what Jeremy read. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send me with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from any other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for the gifts of your word and the word made flesh. Open our hearts and our minds as we turn to them, and send us your spirit that we may understand your teachings rightly and truly, and to apply what we learn in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, unless you are just totally new to Christianity, if I were to ask you the question, what is the purpose of human life? Or, in old school parlance, what is the chief end of man? You should hopefully be able to readily answer something like, uh... that's right, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Sunday school paid off somewhere some, to some people. Yeah, to, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and even if you were never formally taught any of the classical catechisms of the church, if, if you have read the Bible, you can't help but notice that this this glory, this idea of glory, comes, it comes up a lot. It comes up a lot either as an action in the sense of glorifying God or as a quality of God, as in the glory of God. And so it's probably an important thing then to figure out what this glory is all about. What, what is the meaning of glory? When Moses begs God, please show me your glory, what is, this, what is this glory he wants to see? To come up with an answer from this morning's sermon text, I, I think we need to first set the stage by refreshing our recollection about what happened in the previous chapter in Exodus. So let's, let's get into it. At the beginning of chapter 32, uh, Moses is still up on Mount Sinai getting uh, the Ten Commandments from God. It's taking a little bit longer than, than expected, and perhaps because... The Israelites who have been left behind, they, I don't know, maybe they feel lost, they're certainly insecure, 
And in this insecurity, what do they do? They basically completely lose their minds. And they try to make a god in the form of a golden calf to help make up for this seeming loss of Moses and the Lord. And it gets even better, doesn't it? The Israelites then worship this idol. They make burnt offerings to it, as well as falling into this sort of depraved, orgiastic debauchery. And, you know, what these two acts do, this, this idol worship and this debauchery, amounts to sort of a wholesale rejection of the entire purpose for which God liberated them from the oppression of Egypt. And what was that purpose? It was not simply to make them free to do whatever they felt like doing, but to worship the one true God and to live as his holy and righteous people. And so by rejecting God's purpose, the Israelites turn away from God and thus they really have no purpose. God may as well destroy them. So God says to Moses that he has had enough. He has had enough of their nonsense and he's ready to burn all the Israelites down and make a new nation starting with Moses. He'll be like the new Noah, sort of. And this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because when God tells Moses he's going to do these things, in a sense, rather than just doing them, in a sense, he's sort of inviting Moses to try to intercede on behalf of these stiff-necked fools. I mean, perhaps in some ways it was even a test of Moses. How will Moses react to God's offer to become the father of his own new great nation? Well, luckily for the Israelites, Moses does not just throw them under the bus. Instead, Moses reacts by imploring God as if to try to calm and soften God's angry countenance, making several arguments to try to persuade God, it seems, from destroying the people. Moses' arguments revolve not around the value of the people facing destruction, but on the value of the name and word of God. Your name will be profaned among the Egyptians, and your word to the fathers will fail, Moses tells God. And remarkably, God responds by renouncing his plans to destroy them. Now, this does not mean that the miscreants are completely off the hook, of course. While it is one thing for Moses to hear from God about the horrible things the Israelites were doing down at their camp, uh, it is quite another thing for Moses to actually see with his own eyes this depravity that they are engaging in. And so when Moses actually sees this, when he actually comes down to the camp, he, he goes and flies into this righteous rage, smashing the tablets of the Ten Commandments originally intended to be given to the people and, and dishing out a whole variety of punishments, culminating in this mass purge and this deadly plague that gets inflicted upon the people who made the golden calf. But even so, Moses attempts to intercede on his people's behalf admitting their guilt while begging God for his forgiveness. By the time we reach the beginning of chapter 33, God reiterates the promise he made to their forefathers to conquer the land occupied by the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, and, and so forth. 
Go and lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you, God says to Moses. But God is still deeply unhappy with these people. And so he adds what? But. But I will not go in your midst, lest to be tempted to destroy them anyway. And he orders the people to be stripped of their ornaments or their finery, which is most likely uh, loot that they stripped from the Egyptians during the exodus that had not already been wasted on that uh, golden calf project. So all of that is, is the context behind what is about to happen next. Far from being a holy and righteous people, the Israelites have demonstrated nothing but infidelity and dishonor to their God. And what is more, what is worse, they are stiff-necked in their wickedness. Have you ever sprained your neck uh, or woken up with a strange sort of crick in the neck? I mean, I, I'm now at that age where, uh, you know, it used to be when I was younger, I would be sore or stiff or have a cramp or have a sprain because I did something active. Now I just go to bed and I wake up and that happens. But has that ever happened with your neck, right? And when your neck is sprained like that, you, you can't turn it, but maybe like a few degrees this way and that way. It's, it's stiff neck. You can't, you can't turn your head to the side, to the left or to the right, and you're stuck just looking in, in one direction. That, that's what being stiff-necked is, is sort of all about, being so obstinate and stubborn that you are practically unable to turn left or right, but you are just stuck looking in this one direction. And in this case, the Israelites are stuck looking in a bad direction. Fortunately, at least Moses remains faithful to God. The next several verses, uh, 7 through 11 there and 33, describe the nature of Moses' special relationship with God, in particular emphasizing that the two share an intimacy unparalleled by any other mere mortal. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, it is written here, which is to say that the communication between Moses and God was as direct as one human being to another, and not, for example, you know, through like a, a dream or a vision. And, and this clearly is an is a incomprehensible privilege with God. And Moses makes good use of this privilege. He uses this privilege to make an incredible request to intercede on behalf of these wretched Israelites. He says to the Lord in verse 13, consider too that this nation is your people. What's funny is when you read, uh, when God talks about the Israelites in this context, you'll notice that oftentimes he says, your people to Moses. These are your people. These aren't my, these are your people. Just like, you know, when your kids are bad, sometimes uh, your wife will say, your kids. You know, if they're good, then they're her kids, but your kids. And in the same way, God is saying, he was kind of distancing himself, your people, the people. And Moses is reminding God here, your people, these are. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I mean, consider this. I mean, after all that the Israelites have done, can you imagine the, the gall, the, the nerve, the sheer just chutzpah 
of Moses in making such a request to God? It's, it's really unbelievable. I mean, imagine you have two children and, I don't know, tell them to eat their vegetables, eat your broccoli. But one of the children, what does he do? He, he screams, curses at you, and flings her plate to the floor. The other child actually does what he's told and eat, eats the vegetables. Would the obedient child have the nerve to say, hey, can we still have dessert? And not only that, can my wicked, disobedient sibling also have dessert? I mean, that's kind of what Moses is asking for here. And, and, if, and, and, yet, and not only that, the good kid says, if you're not going to give dessert to my wayward sibling, I don't want any either. That, I mean, I don't know about your kids, but it's, it's really incredible what Moses is asking for here. And yet, given the far greater evil done by the Israelites, the whole golden calf thing, the debauchery thing, Moses' request is far more audacious and incredible. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For, as Moses continues, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I, and once again he reminds him, your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So not only is Moses asking God to have so much mercy on this rebellious and degenerate people that also, I mean, that God will personally go with them to the promised land, but also that God will make them distinct, set apart, even holy among all the peoples of the earth. And even more astonishing than Moses' request to God for all of these things in spite of Israelites' evil, is God's response to Moses. God seems to give in. God seems to change his mind. Remember that God had said he would not go with the Israelites, and now, after Moses' intercession, God says what? This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Now the idea that, God, that a human being can somehow change God's mind is of course, you know, logically problematic when you consider that God is, you know, he's all-knowing, he knows everything, he's infallible, and so forth. And God is indeed infallible. But the human ability to seemingly change God's mind does not mean that God makes mistakes. It means that God is affected by human beings. And how is God affected by human beings? When they speak to him and express their trust in his promises. For when you look closely here, what Moses says to God to change his his mind is not some brilliant insight that God had never thought about before. Rather, Moses simply reiterates what God has already promised to his people long ago, that they would be his people and that he would be their God and that he would lead them to the land that he promised, this land flowing with milk and honey and make them into a holy people. Moses knows that the Israelites are not holy and deserving of God's presence because of their own goodness. Far from it. He knows all too well. We just talked about that in in Exodus 32, uh, how undeserving and wretched that they really are. And by speaking to God as he does, 
he is relying entirely on God's mercy and grace to make it so. And when God seems to change his mind so quickly, so readily, when it comes to turning from judgment to compassion for those whom he will have compassion, does this not tell you something about the nature of God? That our God is the sort of God who is, he's just looking for an excuse to be merciful, to be present for you, and to lead you. Then why do you sometimes hesitate to go to him? Why do you put off imploring him to stay, stay off his anger and instead to ask him? Just ask him to show his favor upon you and to make you holy. Are you, are you worried about being too bold, too audacious to approach him in prayer? If you call upon the Lord Jesus, you need not be, for it is written in Ephesians 3, in Christ, you have boldness and access with confidence through your faith in him. Moreover, in Christ, you have a mediator, an intercessor who has even greater favor with God than Moses. If Moses loved his people, unbelieving and wicked and undeserving though they were, enough to plead on their behalf before the Lord Almighty, then how much more does the Son of God love you to plead for you in front of his Father? Go to him, and when you pray, recount in your prayer the promises he has made to you in his word, and he will fulfill them, because they are not based on you, they are based on him. And I think Moses also understands this, that the fulfillment of God's promises must be based on God, certainly not in any quality of the people he is leading and not even on himself. For then he asks, please show me your glory. And this at last brings us to the question I posed at the very beginning of the sermon. What is glory? And in particular, what is the glory of God? What is this glory of God that, that the Bible makes such a big deal of, both here and elsewhere? Moses wants to know the answer, because by asking God to show him his glory, Moses is basically asking God, give me a glimpse into the essence of your divine nature. Show me what powers your promises. Let me apprehend the meaning of your holy name. Let me understand even one-tenth of what your glory is so that I may have some assurance that you, O Lord, will certainly grant your saving presence to an undeserving and stiff-necked people. And what is God's answer to Moses here? What will God choose in this moment to show Moses to be his glory? Will it be his mighty power? I mean, God is the creator of the universe. I mean, he is the being who set trillions of, of these gigantic thermonuclear fireballs that we call stars across this unimaginable expanse of time and space. Or will it be God's omniscience, his, the fact that he knows all things? Will he prove that by, for example, bring all the sins of mankind to remembrance before Moses? 
No. Hear God's winsome reply to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim you before my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And so first, the goodness of God is his glory. God's greatest glory is that he is good. Of course, God has many, many glorious qualities. But here God shows Moses that the first jewel and the crown of his glory is his goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, he says. And indeed, the goodness of God is encompassed in the perfection of his nature, such as in John, or one, 1 John 1 through 5, when it is written, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so all that emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his will, cannot be anything other than good. And we see this in the beginning in Genesis, all the way at the moment of creation when it is written, and God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The psalmist writes in Psalm 33, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And of course, it is out of God's goodness that we are saved, even though we are not worth saving. Titus 3, 4 reminds us that when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The goodness of God is the lifeblood of the believer's trust, and it is this quality which should most appeal to our hearts. Because his goodness endures forever, we should never be discouraged. Indeed, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But that's not all God showed Moses, is it? Besides the goodness of God, there is another quality expressed in God's reply to Moses, which is an essential attribute of his glory. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. There then is his sovereignty, his absolute freedom, authority, and power to do as he alone wills. Now, God's sovereignty is a concept that is naturally offensive to the minds of unregenerate human beings who desperately want to believe that they, not God, are masters of their own destiny. Recall, after all, that the original sin of mankind has to do with the first humans partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for the purpose of becoming like God. In the military, we were required to wear ID tags, which I guess in you know, civilian vernacular now, what, dog tags, they're called. And upon these tags, 
are inscribed various bits of information that are important in case you're ever found uh, either seriously injured or killed. And one of these bits of information has to do with your religious affiliation. One of my sergeants, Sergeant Tetro, thought he was being clever by putting on his tag Tetroism for his re religious affiliation because, as he put it, he only believed in whatever he wanted to believe and he lived his life accordingly. But the truth is, the vast majority of humans have the same religion. They are essentially the gods of their own lives, with their own flourishing being their chief end. Therefore, God's sovereignty threatens their sovereignty, which they find intolerable. But for the believer, for you hopefully, if you trust in God and in his promises as Moses did, contemplating the glory of God's sovereignty, especially connected with his goodness, his grace, and his mercy, this will give for you incalculable personal, practical, and eternal significance. So to restate God's response to Moses, it is the glory of God to be good, and in his goodness, it is the glory of God to be gracious to whomever he wills, and his will is not based on any condition or qualification possessed by the person or persons upon whom God bestows his grace. There is nothing apart from God that constrains his grace. His will, his freedom, his choices originate in himself alone. And he does not choose to be gracious to me or to you or to anyone because of anything that I or you or anyone else did to deserve his goodness and grace. Point of fact, who are we like? We are, we are actually more like these wretched Israelites in Exodus. We create idols, I mean, hopefully not of golden calves, but our own idols out of a mixture of doubt and anxiety, and we turn away from the one true God. And far from deserving God's grace, we are deserved to be destroyed for our infidelity. Paul confirms this in his interpretation of Exodus 33 in Romans 9:14, when he asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In the context of salvation, then, this means that the basis of God's mercy is not your own will, but his will. When you love God, it is because he loved you first. Your will is not sovereign, but God's is. Ephesians 1.4 concurs that it is written, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, since God is eternal, before he even created the heavens and the earth, God exercised his glorious sovereign grace to love you, to be merciful to you, to give you eternal life instead of the eternal death you deserved, so that when you boast of this awesome inheritance as a son or daughter of God, you will boast in the Lord and not in yourself. 
And that is just a sampling. This doctrine of sovereign grace permeates all of Scripture, from the Old Testament as we see here to the New. And that is only natural since, as God told Moses, his glory is in his goodness and his sovereignty. And we can choose here to either stand before the glory of God in awe of his sovereign grace, worshiping his majesty in joy and gratitude, or we can rebel against his absolute authority and by doing so merely confirm that we remain unregenerate sinners lost forever. So stand before this glorious sovereign grace of God. There are so many other practical implications for you if you can stand before it and bask in his radiance. There is no doctrine that will better strengthen your humility, your hope, and your joy. Dwell upon the truth that your faith is completely free and un, is an un, absolutely free and unmerited gift of God who wanted to give this to you before he made the stars, this planet and everything and anyone on it. You are completely dependent on this gift because you were otherwise essentially dead in your sins. But God in his grace favored you and brought you back to life. He created in you a new heart, a clean heart, and renewed a right spirit within you so that you would have a will to truly trust him. And in this way, every act of faith and obedience is the work of God's grace in your life. And the contemplation of this fact should obliterate every hint of pride in you and grant you the humility of the saints. Consider too that by telling Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, God was telling Moses and giving him hope that the breathtakingly poor choices of the stiff-necked Israelites who committed idolatry and dishonored the God who freed them from Egypt would not cut them off from his grace. And so too it is with you. Since God's grace does not depend on the degree or amount of good or evil in you, you can never say that you are too lost to be forgiven, to be shown mercy. This means that if there is anyone hearing these words who think that they are without hope because they have done too many horrible things, because your soul is too filled with darkness, then you are wrong. There is no such thing as a sinner beyond saving. And in fact, God seems to love magnifying his glory of his sovereign grace by saving the worst human beings imaginable. If this is you, then turn away from yourself. Turn towards him who loves you. Turn away from your sin and call upon the Lord. Call upon him as Moses called upon him to show you the glory of his goodness and his sovereign grace. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you and we thank you. And we pray that you would show us your glory. May we take heart and rejoice that our faith and our salvation depend not upon us, but solely upon your goodness and your will to be gracious to whom you'll be gracious and merciful to whom you will show mercy.
In Christ's name we pray, amen.